Hello, friends, and welcome to the Now and Zen podcast. This episode is sponsored by the Goo Goo Sleep Company and by Dream Drive. Explore Japan in comfort and ease with Dream Drive. Rent a customized camper van to go camping, take nature hikes, relax at onsens, or just discover the many beautiful places less traveled around Japan. Dream Drive has various camper vans for solo travelers and families and is more affordable than trains and hotels as it's only one price per night. Go to dreamdrive.life to plan your next Japan adventure. Enter the coupon code ZEN and receive a sweet discount when making your customized camper van reservation. Dream Drive, the hotel on wheels. Hello, everybody. This episode, I sit down with Deanna Elstrom. She is a veteran brand marketer, brand strategist, and consumer insights specialist. She has recently launched her own company, Somi Insights, where she combines her love of branding with her fascination with how culture influences human behavior. While Japanese consumers are a key area of Deanna's expertise, she also has a wealth of experience with Chinese and South Korean consumers and has worked in the US and Paris before arriving in Tokyo seven years ago where she led two top agencies. We discuss her coining of the new Japanese word somi and its meaning, I learn a few new things about insights versus findings, some great examples of how culture defines behavior in Japan, a fascinating deep dive on why Japan is ranked number 58 on the Global Happiness Index. Spoiler alert, it was a Western values-based survey. And some stories of her first experience in Japan as a teenager and how this crafted her current Japan journey. Brand strategy and consumer insights with fascinating real-life examples. Direct from Tokyo, this is Now in Zen with Deanna Elstrom. And your last name is pronounced Elstrom. Yes. Elstrom, okay. It means electric current in Swedish. Oh, cool. <laughs> it's not my name. It's my husband's name. Okay. I'm Italian. So, yeah, my last name is Charlanti, which I only found out later in life actually is, means like a, a con man, like a, a charlatan. Oh. A charlatan, someone who lies and someone who talks a lot. Nice. So I was kind of missing my maiden name, and then someone told me that meaning. I was like, oh, okay, I'll take electric current. That's fine. Yeah, nice. I like <laughs> it. Well, then, Deanna Elstrom, Thanks. welcome to the Now in Zen podcast. Thank you. Thank you for having me. I've never met you before, so nice to meet you. <laughs> nice to meet you. And congratulations on Somi Insights. Thank you very much. Yeah. It's funny because I announced the opening of Somi Insights on LinkedIn and on Facebook and everyone came back and said congratulations, congratulations, which kind of felt funny to me because in a way I've been doing the same thing all along. And it was just a way to formalize what I've already been doing since I left Ipsos at the end of August. And doing the website and putting a name to it, etc., it was a chance for me to really distill what I offer and what I intend to do when I work with clients. So yeah, I, I did see your announcement on LinkedIn and then I went to your website. Congratulations, it's a gorgeous website. Thank you. It's very easy to navigate your business proposition, the who, what, why, where, and mm -hmm. when of it. Really easy to understand, great links, very professional. Thank you. It was so fun and satisfying to do it. 
kind of promised to myself that I would put all that together and put everything that encompasses my philosophy and what I offer to clients and all the different case studies about different projects I did and my point of view really about what we need to be offering and what brands should be um, expecting from the research that they get and how they can maximize the value. It was so satisfying to be able to kind of distill that all down to its most essential elements. The way that it's organized and the clarity and the visual cues that are there are very representative of the types of reports that I try to create. Anybody could look at your website, (laughs) somiinsights.com, and figure out exactly what you do within seconds. And I'm quite sure the URL... Somi Insights was probably available because you coined your own Japanese word. That's that's right. What I wanted to do was have something that I could speak to the fact that we're in Japan and the inspiration of being in Japan. Somi, I feel like, really puts it together so simply in that so means idea or concept or insight. Mm-hmm. And then me means reaping the fruits of or bearing fruit. So th- together... The intended meaning is reaping the fruits of your insights. I like Somi. It's easy to remember. And, you know, I've been studying Japanese for over 30 years. And it was a word that I'd never heard before. And <laughs> because I saw it the, doesn't exist. Yeah, I saw the kanji <laughs> for it. And I go, that's cool. And I, I looked it up in, on the Google Translator. Mm. And it didn't come up. <laughs> right, right. There so is that, one other company named Somi. Because I did a little trademark search before I chose it. And it, I think they make soy sauce. Oh. <laughs> Not the same kanji. Okay. Luckily. Very good. Somi Insights. And I like the insight part mm-hmm. of it. I think it was my episode 23 or 24. I had Dominic Carter on my podcast. He defined insight as a combination of experience, mm. context, and new information. Mm. How do you define insight? It's a good question, actually, because the word insight is tossed around a lot. It certainly is. And it's actually often misused, even in research, that people say insights, but what they're really giving you is findings. So findings (laughs) are what consumers say, but insights are what consumers mean. Right? And how do you nice. get there? It's about making connections. And it's similar to what Dominic said about it's a combination. It's about making connections. And it's an unexpected con- connection that clarifies and illuminates. It's a matter of having a lot of data inputs. And data inputs can just be a way of observing the world, a way of gathering information, that you can make connections that actually create some truth, some kind of insight. Right. And then we go out and we gather data. And the data might be consumer data, but it could be market data. It could be my understanding of the cultural context, et cetera. And then you do the analysis, right? You've got all your data. And I always recommend doing it with others. So you do the analysis with others. And it's very awesome if you can have different cultural perspectives as well, right? So I don't claim at all to be a Japan culture expert, right? I'm not Japanese. And I'll never have that innate understanding, that kind of um, inherent understanding that somebody Japanese will have. But often Japanese can't put into words their own perspective because they're too close to it, right? Or their own cultural context. They don't necessarily have the frameworks because they haven't studied it that way. And something becomes clear that wasn't before. And then it seems very obvious. Often insights sound like obvious truths, Right, right? right? And it helps you understand why 
consumers behave the way that they do? What motivates them? It gives it gets you that much closer to answering the business question. And that's the insight. The findings are just a tool to get to insight. But you need a lot. Mm-hmm. You need a lot of context and a lot of understanding to get to good insights. Right. I was trying to think of what would be some interesting insights about the Japanese kitchenware mm. industry. And there are certain products that we don't sell very well that sell excellent in the US or mm-hmm. in Europe or even in Korea. And that is a knife block. We're a knife company. We sell knife blocks around the world. But in Japan, we sell very few. Mm-hmm. And if you just looked at the numbers, you would say, well, you're not doing a very good job at selling knife blocks. You need to sell a knife block because you sell more knives because people put more knives in it, right? Mm-hmm. But in Japan, every house under the sink, there's a little knife holder in there. Or they put the knife in their drawers, mm-hmm. for example. And there's Or on a magnet. Of, mm-hmm. Yeah, or on a magnet. Mm-hmm. And there's a lot of insights there because, well, the kitchen is small. They don't have enough counter space for a knife mm-hmm. block. There's no culture of displaying your knives as mm-hmm. as something that you're proud to, to display in your kitchen, right. for example. So there's lots of these little insights. Uh, now, I would that. say that those are findings. Oh, you would? Okay. Those are just findings, right? Because okay. <laughs> you would go into, you would do research, you would do some research, you would do some ethnographic research, and you would go into a consumer's home and you would say, oh, they already have a place for knives. And oh, it's a really small kitchen and there's no room for a knife block. And oh, there's no cultural background, just knowing Japan, there's no cultural background to a knife block. And then you put those all together, your insight would be kitchen blocks don't fit within the Japanese cultural context, right? I mean, it's like, yeah, yeah it kind of okay. sums it together, right. and that's like the meaningful thing, but then you have the explanation for it, right? right. But it's the combining those findings into meaning. Uh, so sure. the meaning is a knife lock does not fit into the Japanese cultural context. Interesting. But what you're speaking to is the need to understand the, the cultural context before you enter a market and in determining what you what you sell. Thank you for that. Do, 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 I, do I owe you anything for this... <laughs> For this insight. <laughs> just, just my delight. All right. <laughs> it's obvious that culture defines behavior. Do you have any examples that really maybe surprised you? Actually, you mentioned when we talked an article that I wrote on happiness. Yes. On my website. That was something that... I must have seen an article in the newspaper about one of those global happiness surveys. Yeah. And Japanese always rank quite low on those happiness surveys. Yeah. I mean, what's the criteria for this? Exactly. Well, these surveys are typically, they're how you answer. They're how you rate your own level of happiness, how you rate your own level of life satisfaction. And these types of surveys are written typically from a Western perspective. I kept thinking, Japanese are not that unhappy. Yeah. Like, why are they ranking so low? No. And are Finnish people really the happiest? Because I know some Finnish people, and it doesn't necessarily seem that way. And I thought, this really is, must be a very subjective thing. So even when I came to Japan, I was, like, curious about that topic. And once I worked at Ipsos, we used to publish a happiness survey. And I said, oh, let's take that data and look at it from a cultural perspective. So I worked with my Japanese colleagues from an American perspective, we talk so much about, you know, the goal is to be happy and somehow that's a destination to some extent. Yep. And that, of course, happiness is 100% a good thing. Of course you want happiness. Like that's everyone's goals, right? Yes, a mindset and everything's about... I've decided to be happy. (laughs) And when I spoke with my Japanese colleagues, some 
some people said some such interesting things that I grasped onto. I was like, tell me more about that. And I said, okay, what's the goal? Because they said to me, happiness is not really our goal. We would, we would never say that. That's just, it wouldn't even occur to us to say that. I said, okay, well, what is the goal? And one of my colleagues, a young woman said, futsu dei. It's fine. It's fine to be in the like normal, like regular is right. good. And I thought, wow, think about that compared to an American young person. But is it regular subjective? Right. That's a really good point. Exactly. And what she was trying to say, and as, as I discussed it with my colleagues and we, and we bandied ideas around, was that happiness is, of course, a very um, like a conceptual concept, right? And it's very subjective and it's very culturally perceived. In the West we think of happiness as something that you achieve to some extent, right? And it's it's an accumulation of good things in your life that right. you work towards right. by doing and achieving. And Based achievement, on your actions. Yes, absolutely. It, that in a way, you're internally controlling it. It's about your actions to achieve all these good things. It's an accumulation of good things, and it's a destination. So the more good things you have, the better. But Japanese don't necessarily think about it that way. Actually, the way that they described it to me is that they're seeking balance. And I always laugh because the answer to every project is balance and anshinkan. Balance <laughs> right? and, and anshinkan, right? right? To feel at ease, to mm-hmm. feel secure. That's always kind of the answer is balance and anshinkan. This idea of balance is a very Japanese concept, right? This idea of moderation, of yin and yang, of balancing the yep. good and the negative. And what my Japanese colleague said is happiness can have a negative too. Of course it can have a negative too. Too much is not good because it can throw balance out of whack. Whoever thought that too much happiness could be a bad thing? It can attract envy. It could attract envy, exactly. And if it attracts envy, and you live in a collectivist society where people are watching what you're doing and you're supposed to adhere to the norm, it could create disharmony within the group. And disharmony within the group is the ultimate danger in a collectivist society where you depend on your neighbors and your family and the collective is more important than the individual. For Westerners, happiness is associated to extreme emotion, right? Super happiness, exultation, excitement, right? It's a very high energy, high arousal state. Whereas for Japanese, happiness is quieter. And therefore, when they rate their own happiness, they tend towards the middle because they want to be in the middle. They don't want to be on either extremes. And it's a good thing to be in the middle. But compared to Western cultures, most of which would be more happiness is a high arousal state or a more extreme emotion, they end up looking low relatively. Yeah. This article you wrote, it's excellent. It's called Japan and the Dilemma of Happiness. You can also find it at www.somiinsights.com under the tab blog. (laughs) How we think. The tab how we think. (laughs) Yes. And there's a lot of other great articles that you wrote there. Like sustainability Mm. in Japan and how Japanese think about that. That's fascinating for me. Everything is wrapped and Mm -hmm. rewrapped and packaged. You know, when I first came to Japan, I was working at a Japanese department store. During my training, one of the things that I had to learn was how to wrap a present in a Japanese way. I was in menswear, and so if I sold a shirt, I first had to wrap the shirt, I had to fold the shirt up, wrap it in uh, tissue paper, put it in a box, and the box then had like a frame, mm-hmm. but it's a separate piece of, mm-hmm. of cardboard. Mm-hmm. Then it's in a box. Then it's wrapped in the 
either the wrapping paper of the brand and then the wrapping paper of the department store and then put into a paper bag. And if it's raining, <laughs> then we put a plastic cover yeah. over it. And that was service. Right, that's omotenashi. Yes. That was being thoughtful, knowing it's raining, anticipating your needs and wrapping it in plastic. And that whole idea of anticipating needs is also something. Kikubari. <laughs> right, that's also something very distinct, something that makes Japanese service so fantastic. Well, it's not fantastic for the environment. No. That article is also available on your blog link at www.somiinsights.com. <laughs> Many people who start their own creative agency type、mm. businesses usually come from one or two backstories. First one is <laughs> they just want to go on their own because they think they can do it better or they have a unique way of doing something、uh, that's not available in the market.、Uh-huh. Number one. And number two is they have a Special client or two that they have、oh. a great relationship with, you have this tacit understanding that if you were to go on solo, that they would come over and work with you. Right. So there's kind of those, those two backstories.、Yeah. I just didn't want to be part of a big company anymore, I have、sure. to say.、Yeah. <laughs> Mine is not that I, w- I don't want to and could not just take clients from my former employer. It's much more that I knew they would still use me to freelance. So I knew I would still have、mm-hmm. lots of work and still have those relationships.、Yeah. And Ipsos, I'm very close to them and I do lots、Your、of work for、employer. them. Yes,、yeah. I still do lots of work for them and we have a great relationship. And so often、um, they're a partner that I work with all the time. I mean, currently we're doing a huge project together.、Nice. That a client came to me, one of my former clients, and said, I see you left, but can you still? Do this, and I said, Yeah, and so I'm, I'm using them to help me do a lot of the field work. So it's been, it's been great, it's actually worked much more smoothly than I even anticipated. I think of myself as more like、um, you know, those restaurants in Japan where it's a chef who does like he's a complete perfectionist, and there's only 10 seats in his restaurant because、oh, yeah. every night he wants to do it perfectly.、Mm-hmm. That's how I feel about the projects、yeah. that I do. I wanted to have the control, I、yeah. wanted to. Do it on my own so that I can pick and choose my own clients.、Mm-hmm. Um, so I don't have to do projects that I know are going to be a nightmare with a nightmare client. <laughs>、yeah. And but projects that I know I can do something really amazing、yeah. and go as deep as I want and do it as well as I want and be part of every element of it because that's, that's the craft. It's、uh, definitely quality over quantity. Absolutely. But, but I like your reference to. The, yeah. The restaurant. And、right? only in Japan. My husband and、yeah. I, we always go out and say, only in Japan would you find a restaurant like this because if it was this good, they would make it a chain restaurant. Right. I don't want to be a chain restaurant. I don't even want to be a big restaurant.、Mm-hmm. I just want to be that restaurant that only has their like, customers that really appreciate the experience and the quality and making it meaningful. Would you classify your business? Is it like a boutique? Agency? Absolutely. Okay. Absolutely.、Oh, so you like that? Yes, absolutely. And I think、uh-huh. I said on my website, and it wasn't a phrase that was chosen haphazardly, I want to work with a small group of well loved clients.、Nice. Meaning we trust each other and we don't have to go through the whole, oh, are you going to deliver? Are you going to deliver? That they know me, that we've worked together,、mm-hmm. that they know what, what value I bring, and、That's、that,、cool. yeah. Nice. What is your favorite Japanese word 
that doesn't have a direct translation in English. There's so many, aren't there? Right. Because there are things that you say in Japanese that you just wouldn't in English. And I think for me, the one that when I go back to the U.S., I feel always at a loss because I want to say this Japanese phrase because I feel that feeling, but it doesn't exist in English. And it's Yoroshiku onegaishimasu. Yoroshiku onegaishimasu. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, I never thought of that one. Don't you have that feeling that you want to say that? It. Right? Yeah. Especially in a business context. So right. where I'm often working with clients and we're starting off on a project or we're starting off on a yeah. relationship, I really want to say, you know, going to guess you must, or when I meet somebody, because the way that I've understood it is it means we're starting something, let it go well. Yeah. And I feel that way. When you meet somebody new, you don't know what's going to happen in this relationship. But it's nice. It's like the same, I guess, as nice to meet you. But I feel like it has a lot more tied up with Definitely it. Definitely does. And yes. you can also use it when, say, you're working with your team and yep. you have a meeting. And at the end, you're saying, like, please, you know, put your best into this in yep. a way. Like, you know, like, you know, you're asking for a favor. We're in it together. Kind Japanese of thing. society and Japanese language is very ceremonial. There's always words for the beginning and there's always words for the end and yoroshiku onegaishimasu is like that perfect generic word that you can use to initiate something mm-hmm. like when you do an introduction you know hajime mashite mm-hmm. anduru desu yoroshiku onegaishimasu mm-hmm. and then also when you're done you can also say something you know like okay i'll wait for your proposal or thank you for your help today and then Yoroshiku onegaishimasu. It's, it's, it's perfect to start things. It's perfect to end things. Right. And yeah. I don't know the equivalent in English. And I often find myself just wanting to say <laughs> And then, of course, I look like a weirdo. So. Yeah. <laughs> we all know getting a great sleep is important. And this is what Gugu is all about. Super comfortable mattresses at very affordable prices and delivered to your home for free. They back up their best sleep ever promise with a 100-night money-back guarantee. Learn more at gugu.jp and enter the coupon code ZEN for your 20% discount. Gugu. Better sleep, better you. You first came to Japan as a teenager. What influence did this early experience have in crafting your career? Mm. I think it was really the beginning of everything. It was the beginning of my interest in culture, certainly. I grew up in a small city in upstate New York called Kingston. We didn't travel very much. The farthest I had been was certainly Florida, which we drove to. We didn't have passports. And then suddenly my father came home one day and said, well, either we're moving to Detroit or to Tokyo. And I thank goodness it ended up being Tokyo. But I was shocked that we went. It was completely out of the ordinary for my family. My father worked for IBM. Oh, okay. I I thought he worked for GM. Tokyo or Detroit. So it had to be automotive, I thought. Yeah, in the the mid-80s, it was 83. The funny part was on the plane... Again, I had never, I mean, Kingston, New York, we didn't have Japanese food. This was 1983. I knew nothing about Japan except that Shogun, that series, that yeah. TV series, aired right before we moved. So I watched that and I was like all excited. This is, I knew it wouldn't be like that, but it was the only oh, cultural yeah. reference I had. Certainly I knew it was. Definitely no samurais walking around the street. 
Not too many kimonos either. <laughs> but it was like the, the exoticization, sure. right? Of course. And then on the airplane, we were flying business class because the company was paying for it. And there was a Humble nice... Humble brag. <laughs> Not at all. <laughs> and there was a man sitting next to me, a businessman. And they, they asked me what, I, what meal I wanted. And they said Japanese noodles or something else, whatever. And I said, oh, the Japanese. This would be my first Japanese food ever, right? Okay. And they gave me the wadibashi, the breakable chopsticks. But I didn't know that you broke them trying to get like one noodle at a time and the nice businessman next to me said I think you can break those and I was like are you sure? Oh, <laughs> well wow. they get mad. So wait a minute so you were trying to like pull them apart a little bit and put a noodle in the middle? Yes. Like, I, like tweezers. Who would think that you could break them? Okay. They looked very nice. Oh, so then I remember funny. landing at the airport and just like noticing how people were greeting each other Japanese and not hugging yeah. and being very undemonstrative. Yeah. And I didn't know that was possible. I mean, I'm, when you're 14 and you've never left your own country, you don't question that the way that you do things, the way that you see the world, the way your family does things, you don't question whether those are human nature or culture. I mean, I didn't have any idea of culture. Yeah. I thought that was how humans interacted. So yeah. to see humans interact in a different way was a complete revelation for me. This seemed crazy to me. The fact yeah. that they didn't hug, the fact they bowed to their own family members, like that. Yeah. I, I'm Italian. That yeah. did not seem <laughs> normal. You didn't come right back to Japan after high school mm -hmm. or after college. You mm, right. kind of took a roundabout right. way. So my junior year of college, I always intended to study abroad because of my interest in culture. I actually planned to go to France. I really liked France. I had spent like a few months there one summer um, in high school and really loved it, loved the French language, Wanted and was studying both French and Japanese in college, and I needed a recommendation. So I brought it to my Japanese professor because she knew me the best, because I was in like a high level of Japanese, so there were only a few students. So of all my professors, probably she Another humble brag. <laughs> and um, she said to me, and I don't remember the interaction exactly, but I remember saying, you dumb girl. Oh. Why would you go to France? There are plenty of people who speak French and English. You've studied Japanese for seven years. You should go to Japan. So I changed right there. I didn't go to France. I went to ICU for a year on a, a, a university program. And I asked my father if he knew anyone uh, who I could maybe live with. And through one of his colleagues, his ex-colleagues from IBM, he found who I call today my Japanese parents. So they had never, this couple were the same age as my parents and they had never had an exchange student before. And it was an incredibly intense experience. I absolutely hated it for the first three months. Okay, and why, did you, why, why did you hate it? Because it was such a bizarre, again, a cultural clash. Like they had never had children. I was, and I was their first exchange student, and I think we had a very different idea about what being an exchange student meant. Okay. Did they speak English, or did you speak uh, Japanese? I spoke Jap bit? I already spoke Japanese, okay. so they spoke, actually, my Japanese father, he had been a translator in the 1964 Olympics, so he had really studied English. He really was a fan of English. Uh, he spoke quite a bit, but I really insisted on speaking Japanese, because okay. in my mind, it was like, that's why I'm here. I am here to learn Japanese. So why so. did you hate it for the first three months? Oh, I hated it. Um, because... <laughs> They, well, first of all, it was very lonely. I think it was very lonely. I went from being living in a college dorm, having the time of my life, to living the life of a 40-year-old Japanese uh, couple. Okay. I, I lived at home with them. and But the worst part was just that I was so under the microscope. I was this discovery. I was their long-lost daughter. Everything was up for comment. Did they like to 
uh, show you off? Oh, yes. And I was so uncomfortable, of course, because I'm navigating without a script. And so I wanted to please them. I wanted to do the right thing, but you don't know what you're doing. And so I was kind of paraded around the neighborhood and taken to each neighbor to bring a gift and introduce myself, which is, of course, the right thing to do. It is, yes. <laughs> but very uncomfortable. But it was more that so I was under a microscope. I was too babied. I was treated like I was five years old. Like my Japanese mother would make me a bento box, like a three-tiered, like lacquered bento box, nice. wrapped in a fudoshiki, nice. and then stand in the street and wave goodbye to me. And the street was very long and straight. Oh. And the pressure of pleasing and doing the right thing, just, I was extremely stressed. How many, how many times would you turn around and, and, and wave back? And, multiple, yeah. multiple. So in Japan, it's, it's custom and it's tradition that when you move, you give soba to your neighbors. Ah. So in your case, when you moved in, yes. what did you give to your neighbors as the foreign ah. exchange student who's moved in? Well, my Japanese mother luckily had prepared it. I'm sure okay. it was some kind of sweet. Some yes. Sweet. For them, I brought to my Japanese parents some highball glasses from my university. And highball glasses. Yeah, highball. You mean alcohol high, highball Yeah, highball glasses. Yeah, okay. I thought they were just water glasses. But um, we started making grapefruit juice and tonic. And we would, so I went to Duke University. And so he, would, my Japanese father would call this Duke. Okay. So at night he's like, oh, are we drinking Duke? Or are we drinking wine or beer? So drinking Duke is uh, grapefruit juice and gin. No, alcoholic. Okay. I was 20. <laughs> okay. Well, in Japan, that's, that's legal that's age. That's legal. I was legal sure. age. Okay. <laughs> Maybe he put something in it. No? <laughs> no, no, we drank gin and gin and grapefruit juice. Oh, gin. Yeah, yeah, gin. Oh, I thought you said grapefruit juice and tonic. I'm sorry. I did say that. I missed Oh, that's all right. Gin. Sorry. Now you know how misspeaking happens. It always sounds like an excuse politicians make, but uh -huh. <laughs> <laughs> you start using the wrong word. There's been a few of those recently. <laughs> Don't need to get into that. Yeah. Going back to Somi Insights, specifically, what are some of the USPs or differentiators that you bring to the Japanese market that's not really already out there? The point of difference that I feel like I can bring and have brought over my career doing this in Japan over the past six years is that link between consumer research and insights work and linking it to brand strategy because I have a background both as a marketer as well as a brand strategist as well as a consumer insights person. I've really come to see what's valued so much by clients and what's kind of missing for most consumer research in Japan is that things end at the point that you give the research research report to the client and you right. deliver the presentation and yeah. they're all excited and, and then you don't see what happens afterwards. Guilty as charged. <laughs> really? Don't yeah. do that. Because the researcher is the consumer voice. Keep the consumer voice as your superpower because after the researchers have sat listening to consumers and pouring over desk research and thinking together and analyzing to come up with these insights, they you can pose different questions to them and they can answer with the consumer in mind in the consumer voice. Take a deeper dive. Absolutely. So I think that in Japan, the market right now has really seen research as just an input. But yep. research is really integral to keep the consumer voice as part of the equation. Yeah, it's just one part of the brand success. Absolutely. A mistake that's often made of researchers is that thinking that the report has to be lots and lots of words to prove how much work they did. It's not about showing how much work you did. That doesn't matter. What matters is having things that are usable and understandable to the client that then they can take forward. 
my reports definitely have lots of words in them, but it's very visual, very easy to understand yeah. and really focus on key insights. You know, what I'm feeling, this is just my interpretation of listening to you, you have a specific skill set combined with a passion, combined with an attitude of selectivity. You want the business that appeals to you and you are going to do it in the most passionate, professional, and effective way. Mm. And that's going to be enough for you. There's a lot of talented people saying A is better than B or B is better than C. That's really not the best way to look at things, I believe, a lot mm -hmm. of times in business. No, we're all offering something yeah. different. So it depends on what your need is and right. how you want to work. You know, some clients don't want to be involved. They want to hand it off yep. and say, come back with the answers. And that's one way to do it. Yeah, it's it's really, it's a matching of work styles and personalities, yeah. and it's what you said before. It's about more of a boutique approach rather than yeah. a mass. And I think that's a USP right there. Honesty. In my industry, all the professionals are great, but with me, you're going to get me. And that's what I think I said on the website. I said, I am responsible for every element of the process. It's yeah. true. That, that's, that's what I take away from yeah. your great website. Yeah, thank you. You come from a strong background in beauty brand marketing. Yes. How unique is the Japanese beauty market? Because my impression is that Japanese consumers prefer Japanese brands. Mm. Am I wrong? Uh, it really depends, and it depends on what the product category is as well. Skincare is one category where Japanese women do tend to prefer Japanese brands because there is a belief that Japanese skin is distinct. And Korean women will tell you that their skin's distinct from Japanese skin. And, you know, there's very much nationalism or a sense of the fact that skin is very unique and specific to race and specific to uh, climate and specific to, you know, everything that yeah. you grow up in. And, and also preference in terms of texture and fragrance, etc. So there is a sense that Japanese brands are more suitable to Japanese skin. As well as in Japan, there's a big emphasis on gentleness. And so there's a sense that Japanese brands are going to be more gentle on Japanese skin as well. Yeah. But there is an openness to Western brands, certainly for in the color categories. There's, you know, a certain kind of emotional brand equity that comes with Western brands as well. It's an incredibly competitive market and Japanese consumers are distinct. Japanese beauty consumers are distinct in what they require and what they expect. So, you know, department stores aren't very strong in most parts of the world anymore. But and unfortunately in Japan during Corona, I'm really afraid for Japanese department stores. But when it comes to beauty, most women who have access to department stores use department stores very extensively yeah. for the beauty counseling. And Japanese women are unlikely to buy skincare products without sampling it first. And that doesn't mean just a dab from a bottle at the counter. That means getting a sample and going home and using it for three days. And a lot of Western brands as well will use Japan as a place to kind of test out on the most discerning, demanding beauty consumers in the world, which are Japanese women, especially when it comes to skincare. And so they test it out, they try it, then they might go back and purchase. But they very, very rarely will just buy 
out of a whim kind of thing. Yeah, and I think that Japanese, as consumers in general, tend to be very risk averse. They don't just、for、buy、sure. on a whim. They gather lots of information and they go online and they research the brand and they research, you know, the different product line and then they go to the beauty counter and they get counseling and then they get a sample and they take it home and they use it for three days、yeah. before they buy it. Is the bigger opportunity foreign companies that want to come into Japan? Or is it Japanese companies that want to expand overseas?、Uh, to be honest, Japanese companies tend to really want to work with someone Japanese for the day to day. When I've worked with Japanese companies, it's typically where I have Japanese partners absolutely involved as the key、oh, client、really? contact. Yeah,、um, it depends. But if you're going to deal with a very Japanese company, language is a huge thing. They're very detail oriented typically and very process oriented. When you enter into a research project, and a lot of it, a lot of it, you just have to trust your partner because I can't explain exactly how I'm going to get to the inside always. We're going to do these activities, but I can't say step by step. Here's what I'm going to deliver on this day. Here's what, you know, here's where we're halfway to the insight. You know, it's very much it's it's both magic and science. It's our it's our art and science. Like there's、yeah. there's a certain thing where you just have to let the data cook together and run around in your brain and the conversations that you have with your team until you get there. And so I think for Japanese clients that can be very stressful. It seems like you would have a leg up though. Japanese companies that want to expand overseas. You being a foreigner,、Absolutely. it seems like you would definitely、Absolutely. be the person that they would want to talk to. You mentioned it earlier about the culture being risk adverse. I used to work for a online recruiting company. We had a great service. It was a great value. However, a lot of our big Japanese clients didn't want to use our service because our name was not well known.、Right. Whereas Recruit was well right. known. Right. Therefore. If they were not successful with recruit, the hiring manager or the decision maker wouldn't get in trouble because his boss might、right. say, "You weren't successful. Who did you use?" Well,、oh, I used recruit. Oh,、hmm, yeah, well, okay.、Right. But if you used company ABC that nobody ever heard of, that guy's going to get in trouble. Very good point. Yep. Home in Japan and home in the West are completely different. In that, home in Japan is an intimate space.、Yes. It's not a showcase, and it's a place to de-stress. And relax and re-energize to face the world again tomorrow. Whereas in the West, we might think of it as a high-energy place to entertain, to have happy family moments, etc. And again, happiness is a high arousal state. So,、yep. so home is a much brighter, active place. Whereas for Japanese, look at like the colors that are in home furnishings. They、right. tend to be very muted, a lot of wood, etc. So again, related to the whole happiness thing. Home serves、yep. a very different function. I had another guest on this podcast. It was episode number twenty-six or number twenty-seven.、Uh, Loic Bizel. He is a French gentleman who's in the fashion industry here in Japan. He commented, "Japanese like to spend more money on their fashion、mm-hmm. because that's what they show to the world. That's what they show to society.、Mm-hmm. Whereas they don't invest so much money." In their home, like buying a painting or buying something that that's expensive for their home, because they don't show it to anybody. Right, right.、That、it's like the really fancy cars, right? But in Japan, of course, that's complicated by the fact that you don't want to show off too much and attract、right. the envy. I was living in Minami Asabu until recently, and you see some crazy cars there, like、yeah. Lamborghinis and Maseratis.、Yeah. And I'm always trying to figure out how does that fit into the whole not attracting、yeah. envy. I haven't figured that out. <laughs>、yeah. 
Well, congratulations once again on Somi Insights. Thank you so much. They were great questions. And yeah, I was delighted to be part of this. Thank you. Feel free to use this podcast on your own website. Thank you so much for your time today. Thank you for helping uh, me articulate the point of difference. It It was a great and fun exercise. And that was Deanna Elstrom, Consumer Insights Professional. I love episodes like this as I'm fascinated by culture and how it affects human behavior, especially in the consumer business industry. Do your research, friends, because what works in New York, Paris, or Shanghai might not work in Tokyo, and that's where Deanna comes in. Check out our wonderful website at SomiInsights.com. Thank you for listening. If you enjoyed today's episode, please leave a comment or rating on iTunes or wherever you consume your podcasts. Have a great day or evening, and we'll catch you next time. Bye, everyone.